Well, it only took about three hours for the Champions League to deliver a shock result. How did Swiss champions Young Boys knock off the mighty Manchester United in their return to Europe's premier club competition? Also, we'll take a look at some of the favorites of the Champions League, who might disappoint and who might surprise, along with my five U21 players to watch in this season's Champions League. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tactics Room, presented by Breaking the Lines. My name is Will Fowler. I am your host for for this 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 audio roller coaster, I suppose is what we'll call it at this point. Um, it's been a minute, hasn't it, since we last spoke? Uh, hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all doing. You know what? No, I hope you're all doing fantastically well. I hope you're all doing brilliantly. I hope your clubs are getting results. Because um, mine, uh, mine. Sir, well, okay. So. All right, I'll tell you how I'm doing, first and foremost. Because the reason why I say I hope your, your clubs are getting results is because mine is not. I, I am about two hours removed from watching Spurs draw with Ren 2-2 on, on match day one of the Europa Conference League. Folks, the Europa Conference League, that is correct. That is Those are the three words that just came out of my mouth. Uh, Champions League finalists three years ago drawing matches in the Europa Conference League today. What a club. What a, what a magnificent club we've got over here. And that's also four days removed from watching Spurs turn Crystal Palace into Prime Barcelona. So it's been a fantastic week for me. It only gets better because Spurs play Chelsea over the weekend. But enough about enough about that club. I hope you're all doing well. Long story short, hope you're all doing well. Hope your club is making you happy. And I hope you, your week in football was better than mine, though I can't imagine that would be particularly difficult. But enough about myself. That's not the point of this podcast, uh, although I do tend to go on a few rants here and there. The point of this podcast, if you are new, if you're a returning listener, you already know about this, sit pretty for about 35 seconds. If you're new, the point of this podcast is to try and view the game in a different light. It's to avoid the same clickbait questions and storylines and go beneath the surface to analyze some of football's biggest stories. It's not your grandpa's football podcast. That is uh, a new phrase that I've tabbed on episode three. Testing it out. Let me know if you like it. Let me know if you hate it. We're workshopping a lot still. It's only episode three. We're workshopping a lot, so let me know. This is episode three. If you've been here since the beginning, I salute you. I know this is an audio podcast. You can't see me currently, but I did actually just salute in my basement, so that shows you how much you mean to me. Uh, if you, if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're happy to have you stay a while, get comfortable, and also potentially consider listening to episodes one and two if you like what you hear in the next 45 minutes or so. What do you say we just jump right into things then with with, uh, with the main topic of today, which is our first match analysis on the Tactics Room. This is something that I would really like to dive into, and we haven't done a whole lot yet because there haven't been a whole lot of shocking results. But, you know, the Champions League is perfect territory for this kind of stuff. These, these I wouldn't say lopsided results, but the, the lesser-known domestic champions taking points and getting results out of some of the biggest clubs in Europe. The Champions League is where that happens, and we got one right off the bat. As I alluded to, Young Boys defeating Manchester United 2-1 in their their return to the Champions League, their first time in the Champions League in three seasons, re-enter the competition with a bang. They came from behind to knock off Cristiano Ronaldo's Manchester United 2-1 at home on match day one. A fantastic result for the club who may be looking to shock everyone and potentially advance into the knockout stage. Am I crazy for saying that? Potentially. I think you still have to tab them as an outsider in a group with Villarreal and Atalanta, but you could do a hell of a lot worse on match day one than a one than a, than a 2-1 victory over Manchester United. I want to talk about how they did it, though. I want to, to take the match and break it down and understand what young boys did 
to actually achieve this result because Manchester United are no easy side to beat. So the way I want to do this and, and every every match analysis will be different because obviously every match is different. There are tides and twists and turns and and turning points and a whole a whole plethora of different things that go into the flow of a 90 minute football match. But I want to to break this match down into two parts primarily. And it may sound like a statement of the obvious, but the the pivot, the turning point is the sending off of Aaron Wan-Bissaka. That completely, completely changed the tides of the match because young boys were defending well prior to the sending off, but they weren't doing much in the attacking phases of the game. No real sustained possession. And it seemed Manchester United were starting to figure out how to break down their Swiss opponents, which we'll get into in a little bit once we we dive a bit more in depth into this uh, into to this analysis. But after the sending off, we really saw uh, an inability from United to adapt their style of play to ten men, and we'll talk about what that style of play was. Young boy were able to advance thanks to really good fullback play and numbers now a numbers advantage in midfield, which they didn't always have prior to the sending off, and we saw them grow in confidence, which is the most important thing for an underdog heading into a Champions League match at home with a packed stadium. We saw them grow in confidence, and that's so so powerful in an environment like this one. As the match progressed, it, it felt truly it felt more and more likely that they were going to to take a point. It really did in the second half. It felt like young boys were going to take a point from Manchester United. They ended up taking all three. So let's break this match into two phases, as I said, pre-red card and post-red card, because that that was the major turning point. So let's talk about young boys before the sending off of Aaron Wan-Bissaka, because when you look at a match like this one, a, a, a club like Young Boys defeating Manchester United 2-1, to one, due, not due to, not at all, not even in the slightest, due to a red card, as we'll get into it in a little bit, but with the red card involved, it's very easy, I think, to look at the match and say, oh, good on Young Boys, three points in a, in a difficult match, fantastic result, but you really have to pin things on that sending off. That's what what can be pointed to as the reason why Man United didn't win this match. That is is far from the case, I think, with with this match, because young boys, before the red card, actually were very, very impressive to me. They played in a 4-1-4-1 that switched to a 4-4-2 at times out of possession, and the way they lined up, briefly, we'll go through their formation. It was Hefty, Kamara, Laporte, and Garcia at the back. Martins played in that lone defensive midfielder role. We saw Fasnacht, uh, Abisher, Sierra, and Ngamalu as the midfield four, and then Elia as uh, as the lone striker. And we'll talk about Elia's impact a little bit down the line because he played an important role, but it was not as a traditional number nine center forward. United were definitely, I think, the better side before and when Bisaka were sent off. But young boys look to be every bit as interested. And maybe it's match day one. Maybe it's because they're back at home. Maybe it's the allure of Manchester United. But whatever it was, they looked to be a tough task. And and they looked, like I said, every bit as up for the match as Manchester United did. Um, what impressed me the most about young boys in the, the opening stages of the match is that you might expect a club like this to park the bus, and they didn't. They didn't park the bus. They actually played a really, a really very disciplined and structured in in the opening stages of this match. They didn't park the bus, and, and while they didn't do that, they didn't really press high up the pitch either. They invited the ball into their half, and that could be for a whole number of reasons. Could be because they didn't want to stretch themselves out. Could have been because they wanted to get chances on the counter. Could have been they wanted to close the half spaces. Whole lot of reasons why a club would choose to to not park the bus, but also not press the ball high up the pitch. And another thing that that 
young boys did, which added to that, was they marked the wingers extremely tightly. Uh, the two fullbacks in Hefty and Garcia had bundles of energy, and they didn't really let Jaden Sancho or Bruno Fernandez out of their sights at all. Because a lot of times you saw Bruno and Paul Pogba switch roles. Pogba started as right midfielder, but he would oftentimes drift centrally, and Bruno Fernandez would go over and play on the left. Nothing out of the ordinary from Manchester United. Um, but those two players, mainly Bruno and mainly Jaden Sancho, were marked extremely extremely tightly. And the benefit of a 4-4-2 like that is that you generate that natural width without opening yourselves up in the center of the park. So those wide defenders and wide midfielders were able to go and aggressively mark United's wide players without really opening up a whole lot in the middle of the play. And young boys, as I mentioned, they were benefited by some real high-energy wide midfielders who provided plenty of defensive contribution in the opening stages, particularly Christian Fasnacht, this player who I was really, really impressed with, somebody who was looking to get forward when Young Boys had the ball. But when they were out of possession, I mean, Fasnacht was one of Young Boys' hardest workers over at, at, uh, at right midfield, tracking back, winning the ball back, helping out his fullback. And that was a massive reason why United didn't really generate a whole lot of chances in the opening stages. What was really unique for me was that they were, as I said, they were extremely organized. The lines moved together. They, they were rarely out of position when they had a chance to set themselves up in, in their own half. But they still had this aggression when the ball was played into an attacker's feet. And it's, it's, it's a thin line to balance, being organized but being aggressive. But Young Boys did it very, very well. They swarmed the ball when the ball was played into an attacker's feet. And they usually, to their credit... They usually timed it pretty well, and they kept United without any real chances in the opening phase. That that aggressive pressing the ball, whether the ball was played into the feet of Ronaldo, Pogba, whoever, they, they would instantly bring two or three players to the ball as soon as it entered their defensive third. And United were most times too slow to react. They were too slow to, to lay a ball off or make a quick run or, or put a, string together a series of short and quick passes. And so that strategy that young boys use of, of, of staying disciplined and almost choosing their moments to strike really, really worked. The only place they looked really susceptible was when they were transitioning from playing in possession to playing out of possession, and that's actually the one moment where they were opened up, and that's how United got their first goal through Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo, who your defense can be it can be nearly perfect, but if you make a mistake, expect those two players to mop it up. Uh, it was a fantastically worked goal for United, to be fair. Uh, it was Bruno finding a bit of space on the transition, putting it outside of the boot cross to Ronaldo, who had slipped in behind Garcia, the left back. Um, and that was the only real major chance that Young Boys conceded, but it put them down 1-0. And after the goal, it should be said, uh, it did look like United were only getting stronger, and that's because they were starting to figure out how to break Young Boys' disciplined defensive shape, which is something that that uh, I alluded to earlier. United, at the, at in the beginning phases of the game, couldn't figure it out. As the match progressed, they were starting to understand how Young Boys had to be broken through. And, and we saw United then start to play quicker and shorter passes, emphasize movements off the ball to exploit that space that opened up when Young Boys brought the aggressive press. Because when Young Boys pressed like that, as I said, they were organized but aggressive. And when they, when they pressed like that, they did open up space because you're pulling two or three players out of position to go and press the ball as quickly as you possibly can. And while United in the early stages were too slow to respond to it, they quickly developed this, this style of play of much quicker, much shorter passes and lots of off-the-ball movements to exploit those spaces as soon as possible. And while United didn't really generate 
any massive chances. We did see them become a bit more dangerous in possession. They were getting closer to the young boys' goal. Um, though to young boys' credit, the defense was still really strong. And like I said, they didn't concede any major chances. And then, just when it felt like United were on the course for a second, just when it started to feel like it was a matter of when and not if, Aaron Munbisaka takes a heavy touch and just stomps on the ankle of Martins. Straight red, and no doubt about it either. That is a, a it's 100% a red card, sloppy from Aaron Munbisaka. The commentary pointed it out right away, and it reduced United to 10 men. And that's where we really started to see the tide turn. And it had nothing to do with Young Boys getting better in possession, actually, because the first couple minutes, well, that's, that's not entirely true, because Young Boys did generate a, a really well-worked chance right after Munbisaka sending off. But the first sign of... The momentum potentially shifting actually had to do with when United had the ball, because maybe as expected, that solution that United had unlocked, that way to get through the young boys' defense with that quick one-touch passing, outnumbering the opponent in certain areas of the pitch, off-ball movements, exploiting that space, that becomes infinitely harder. It's such an intricate, quick, and, and when done right, beautiful style of play, but it becomes infinitely more difficult when you've got one fewer player than the opposition. It's a numbers game. There's inherently fewer passing options, so you don't have as many players that can make those runs off the ball and, and, and essentially pass through young boys. And so after that sending off, really for the next 60 plus minutes, there were no massively long spells of Manchester United possession because uh, their plan was now defunct. It didn't work anymore. And young boys defended with that same aggression as before the red card, which credit to them, because it would have been very, very easy to change the way they played after the first goal. But they didn't. They, they stayed true to their tactics. They understood that it would work and that it would pay off. Maybe they weren't anticipating a red card, but uh, they didn't change anything. They stuck to that aggressive tactics, and it's much easier to defend against a side with 10 men using that strategy than defending against a side with 11 men when using that strategy. Ole Gunnar Sosar also took off Jaden Sancho, who had really effectively been marked out of the game by Young Boys' uh, right-sided fullbacks. Would that make sense? Or the left-sided fullbacks? Um, or the left-sided uh, midfielder and the left-sided fullback, which meant that Diogo Dallo, who was brought on to replace Sancho, was largely the one responsible for providing most of the width on the right. We saw Bruno Fernandes move into a more uh, exclusively right midfield role, but even he would try to get centrally. That's where he plays best. So really, the only player who was consistently playing on the right was Diogo Dallo. Uh, and that's really where we started to see young boys dominate possession because they passed the ball so well and they were a man up. Um, they generated these fantastic spells of possession. United had no way of really countering that right off the bat. And heading into halftime, they did look the better side. On the half as a whole, United were better, obviously, as evidenced by their goal, and that red card didn't come until about the 35th minute. But the last 10 minutes of the first half, young boys were absolutely the better side. And 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 the second half, uh, we'll get into it, but the second half, young boys just, they looked brilliant. I mean, they, they, they were fantastic. And, and one of the storylines that I really want to focus on when talking about the second half, because I think this is, is if, if, the one Bissaka red card was the biggest was the biggest factor in, in these three points. Young Boys' substitution strategy was the second most important factor in getting this result. Because the substitution strategy on both sides, it's a really fascinating one. And it's a major talking point in this match for me. The biggest one for me, the, the most important substitution that either one of these sides made was Young Boys' introduction of Jordan Ciabaccio at the start of the second half. The, the American striker, the United States international, his introduction at the start of the second half really unlocked a lot of what Young Boys wanted to do in the final third. And if you watch the match, 
You know that ultimately Siabatu provided the winning goal in the 95th minute as well, but he did a whole lot more than that. He was really, really influential in his 45 plus minutes of action. So Siabatu was brought on to play as that center forward, which was, as I mentioned, Meshach Elia's role in the first half. But again, as I mentioned, we didn't see Elia get as involved as he would have wanted in the opening 45 minutes. And the biggest reason for that is that Meshach Elia is not your traditional number nine who takes on central positions and make runs in behind and puts his back into defenders and, and backs down center backs. Elia is a striker who does his best work when he can get into wide positions, take on defenders 1v1, and put in crosses. And I suggest, if you want to learn a little bit more about, about what I mean when I say Meshach Elia is a striker who doesn't play centrally, uh, look at his, his sofa score profile. Look at his sofa score heat map. It is is very obvious that that Elia is a striker who thrives when he can get into wide positions and, like I said, take on the defenders 1v1 and, and, and isolate himself and put in crosses. The introduction of Siabatu allowed him to do exactly that, and that's actually how Young Boys got their first goal in the 66th minute. United defending extremely narrowly, probably, truthfully, because they were trying to prevent uh, Siabatu, who was so lively in his first 20 minutes, from receiving the ball with his back to goal and then either laying it off or to a to a run or turning and shooting because that's what he was doing a lot of just that 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 kind of pivot in the middle of everything and young boys had the ball so much in United's half that Siabatu was getting involved early uh, so United were defending narrowly and the wings which were always full of space for players like Ngamaleu and Elliot to run into it was that it was even more so now it opened with space because United were were now shrinking essentially in their defensive third. Now, that opened up acres of space for, for Elia over on the right, who received the ball with, like, 20 yards of clean grass between him and Luke Shaw. It's really fantastic. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. This this is how much space Meshek Elia had when he received this ball. When I was watching the match, I, I thought that the ball was for no one. I, I like... <laughs> There was no blue United shirts over there. Elliot was was off the screen. I mean, I thought that 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 Martins had played the ball to literally no one. That that's how alone Elliot was over on the right. Um, he had plenty of space. He took all the time in the world. He probably could have taken a nap in between the time of receiving the ball and putting the cross in. Fizzed in across low, which is important because United had the height advantage in in the center of the box, and so a high cross he knew probably would have been headed away. The cross was not fantastic, but. It found the foot of Ngamalayu, who equalized from close range, and that made things 1-1 in the 66 minute. So it was still plenty of time for, for young boys, and to their credit, if there was either if any side was going to get a second goal, it looked like it was going to be young boys. What was more fascinating about this substitutions battle, though, was that we saw the mindsets from both sides in the subs they made. We saw what Olegan Sosar and David Wagner were really, really thinking, and it was very clear to me that United were playing really just to hold on to a point as the second half progressed. And I know Oleg Nasoshar is a manager who gets quite a bit of flack for his substitution strategy, and I think it's sometimes it's, it's not really justified or warranted. I think it's I think he's an easy punching bag, to be totally honest. But in this instance, yeah, I do uh, kind of understand the criticism. I don't fully... I don't fully understand what Oleg Nasoshar's plan was with these subs, because they were very, very defensive substitutions. And I understand that you're down a man, but you've still got the individual quality, I think. As as Manchester United, to get a result and to not have to 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 at least play on the front foot and not have, not have to defend for your lives. I mean, this was a side that, as I mentioned, took off Jaden Sancho for Diogo Dalo, which at the time I suppose made sense to keep the width over on the right. But bringing off players like Donny Van de Beek and Cristiano Ronaldo for the likes of of Nemanja Matic who came on, Rafael Varane came on at halftime. 
there were there were points in this match where United were defending with nine, well, I suppose eight at the back, and Cristiano Ronaldo was the only forward playing across the halfway line. It really felt like the, the plan for United for much of the second half was to defend, win the ball back, and hope that Ronaldo could beat a defender. It was really confusing to me what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's plan was, because it felt inevitable. And that lack of attack is proven by the fact that United had literally 0.00 expected goals in the second half. They had absolutely nothing going forward. I think that's because of the substitution strategy that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer used. Young boys smelled the blood in the water on the other side of things. And the introductions of Siabachu, Fabian Ryder for Martins, a more attack-minded midfielder, and Miralem Suleimani for Sylvain Hefti later in the match. It showed to me that David Wagner thought he could take the points, and that's exactly what he did. Now, ultimately, I, I do think that United likely would have won the match if Aaron Mamisaka hadn't been sent off. And all, when things were all said and done, I think that you know, United had the advantage. It looked like they were the better side going into the red card. That being said, it absolutely is taking nothing away from young boys because they were still very much in the match and they had actually created some chances of their own. And maybe the introduction of Jordan Siabachu at halftime would have added some depth to their attack. But that's not the story here. The story is that uh, what, what are some words that we can use to describe young boys' performance against Manchester United? I would use... I would use three. I would use brave, energetic, fearless, because they understood the situation that they were presented. They understood the gift that they were handed in the red card to Aaron Wambisaka, and they really, really took advantage of it, and they got a a well-deserved three points, and United are back to the drawing board, and I'm sure they have some questions of their own as to why they folded so quickly after going down to 10 men. Um, But statistically, when we look at this match, like I said, this is not... This was not some, some you know, smash and grab, for lack of a better phrase, by young boys. Yes, the second goal was was entirely preventable, and if you go back and watch it, you'll know exactly what I mean by that. But statistically, this was domination by young boys in, in well, across the full 90 minutes, but particularly in the second half. 1.43 expected goals to 0.53. Young boys had the advantage, almost a full expected goal advantage. 17 chances created by young boys compared to three for Manchester United, 19 young boys shots compared to two for Manchester United. Young boys conceded, as I mentioned, 0.00 expected goals in the second half. That is literally the least you can concede. It's it's bizarre just how good young boys were in the second half. Yes, they were a man up, but uh, they still understood the situation. Um, And again, they played on the front foot. 223 passes in the opposition half versus United's 141. When it comes down to it, given the circumstances, young boys, I think, fully, fully deserved the three points in this match. And young boys, truthfully to me, are are now, you know, I'm not saying that young boys are a side that are going to go and, and and win the thing, but um, this is a side that, that I think Villarreal and Atalanta have to be taking seriously because it's, well, first of all, young boys have just beaten Manchester United. But also, young boys, the way they played prior to the sending off, again, what were some of those characteristics about young boys when it was still 11 v 11, when when they were at at even strength? It was young boys only slipped up really once in in 32 minutes prior to the red card, and United capitalized on it, but it was a a energetic, disciplined, but aggressive 4-4-2, 4-1-4-1. It was really, really impressive, and not what we were expecting from young boys. I think we were expecting to see young boys kind of sit back, weather the storm, but that's not what we saw at all. They've got confidence, they've got ability, and they've certainly got the 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 potential to steal some points off of Atalanta and Villarreal if they're not caref- if they're not careful. So I think this result, if anything, has put Villarreal and Atalanta on notice. 
And it has made Young Boys a very intriguing watch for the next couple of match days to see what they can do if they can if they can follow this up, or if if they they kind of prove it was more of a flash in the pan and they they sink back down to fourth place in the group. But regardless, fantastic result for Young Boys. A lot of things that they did to to make it happen. They were helped, of course, by the red card. But when we focus on Young Boys' tactics and abilities, particularly in the second half, they deserved nothing less than three points, and that's exactly what they got. So moving ahead now to the more uh, preview-based portion of this exclusive Champions League episode. I'm so happy I get to say that again. I'm so happy I get to say Champions League episode. The Champions League is back. Oh my gosh. I didn't get a chance to preview it prior to the start of the competition. And so I'm going to do a couple questions previewing it after match day one. And I, I still want to get a chance to talk about who I think the, the favorites are and why. Because I think that's a question that we can still ask, even after the first round of matches. I want to talk about who some of the favorites are. I also want to talk about which clubs might struggle, because there always are some massive European clubs that don't fulfill what they were expected to achieve. And and it's like clockwork. It happens every single season. And then I also want to discuss some of the under-the-radar clubs that might surprise, because we haven't, uh, truthfully, we haven't had one of those in a couple years. Really, I can't name a big one since, well, I suppose maybe Porto from a season ago when they reached a the quarterfinal. But before that, it was it was Ajax in the Champions League semifinal when they were seconds away from from knocking off Spurs uh, and advancing to, uh, to Madrid. I don't know, but we haven't had one of those runs in a while. I think we've got potential for some pretty significant ones. And so I've got two answers for each of those questions. Um, and I want to know what you think. And I hope that I don't I don't offend you if I pick one of your clubs for one of these these lesser sexy questions. But Let's, uh, let's start at the top with which clubs for me are the favorites. And again, I've got two. The first favorite for me, and you know, I, I mentioned it on my show, London's Finest, earlier today, is this is a flame that I seem to always get burned by because I always back them as a favorite to win the competition. And to their credit, they've been getting closer and closer, but they just haven't been able to actually do it yet. But I think, oh my gosh, um, this is the ultimate egg on the face scenario if uh, if they don't win the Champions League because I'm not only picking them, but I'm also admitting that it, it might be silly based on their track record. I think this is the year for me that Manchester City finally win the Champions League. And it comes down to a couple of things for me. Um, number one, they've finally patched every single hole that they've needed to patch. There is, thinking about this Manchester City side, Nowhere, with the exception of maybe a traditional number nine, nowhere that needs improving. That's how good and that's how deep this city squad is. Um, they've patched every hole that they needed to patch. And even when we talk about that striker scenario that they've got, uh, which had come back to plague them several times a season ago, they didn't really have that out and out number nine. Gabriel Jesus wasn't really doing it for them. That problem seems to be resolved, at least early on. And it's not by bringing in Harry Kane or Cristiano Ronaldo. It's by swapping Ferran Torres and, and Gabriel Jesus. Ferran Torres is now the player that's that's occupying that that central position of the attacking three, and he's been he's been fantastic. He's providing assists. But the more shocking, perhaps, of, of that, that slight tactical switch is Gabriel Jesus looks like one of the Premier League's best wingers playing over on the right. He looks fantastic. Gabriel Jesus might be in the best form of his career since joining Manchester City, which is saying a lot because he's been, uh, he's had his moments, certainly, for Manchester City. And so, you know, would it be nice to have Harry Kane in the team? Absolutely. W- would he provide things that Ferran Torres can't at that number nine? 100%. But do I think it's a terminal issue now like it was a season ago? Absolutely not. Because I actually really love Ferran Torres playing as a bit of a false nine, 
dropping in deep and, and, and making runs in behind. And it, it's, I don't know, I feel like that's the way that the game is progressing, using non-traditional number nines, even some of the best strikers in the world, with the exception of maybe Robert Lewandowski, we see do more than just score goals. Harry Kane, Erling Holland, Kylian Mbappe, all do things other than just score goals. And while Fran Torres doesn't have the 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 you know superstardom that those guys have, he is a versatile player. He he prefers to play on the wing. He can he can take on defenders one v one. He can put crosses in, but he's also got got the the burst of pace that you can use as a false nine when you get into the half spaces. Maybe you have to beat a defender on a turn or or or, or take a touch into space and lay a ball off to somebody making a run off of you. Fran Torres is a player who I think will not the long term answer, but will do enough to patch that hole for Manchester City. Elsewhere, I think uh, City still have the best defense in Europe. They've got pacey defenders who can play the ball, don't concede that center back pairing of Ruben Diaz and John Stones or Americ Laporte, whoever Pep Guardiola chooses to go with, is brilliant. I love, I love, I love, I love Joao Cancelo. I think he adds so much and he allows... He allows Manchester City to get the best out of players like Akai Gundogan and Jack Grealish, who, by the way, Jack Grealish's addition will help massively in the Champions League because refereeing in these international competitions tends to be a bit more strict, and he draws plenty of fouls in the Premier League. Imagine how many he'll draw in the Champions League. I just... The the one kind of meme is Pep Guardiola always seems to overthink his tactics in big Champions League matches, right? He always seems to get inside his head and do something bizarre like playing a 2-7-2 like Thiago Mota did or a 3-6-1, or something absurd that nobody's ever heard of and that nobody will ever use again. But I just, and maybe this sounds naive, I don't think there's much for Guardiola to screw up anymore. Guardiola, in general, is he's one of my favorite managers of all time. I think he's a tactical genius. Um, I think he's a lot more than just his players. I don't think that's a particularly hot take, though I know that's kind of a a, uh, a line that anti-Guardiola people like to use. I, I think Guardiola is is brilliant at what he does. But his knock has always been overthinking tactics in big matches. I don't think there's much that he can overthink. And I think he's learning from his mistakes because last year in these big matches, he he didn't do anything bizarre, which is, I guess, the benchmark now. But um, I really like City as the favorite right now to win the Champions League and their 6-3 win over RB Leipzig on match day one. Only uh, only added to that. My other favorite, and again, I've got two, uh, two answers for each question. My second favorite is Bayern Munich. And... I think if you ask people, Bayern Munich is probably in the top three or in the top four. I've got Bayern Munich at a close two. And, and it's because, you know, last year they they were a bit short-sold because Robert Lewandowski was going through some injury woes and Eric Maxim Choupo-Moting is, contrary to popular belief, not the same striker. But there's so much more to Bayern Munich than just Robert Lewandowski. Obviously, Lewandowski is the first player that you'll focus on. But there's so much more to it. Thomas Müller, for example, the ultimate facilitator. He is so, so good, especially in European competition, when he can just find space where, where truthfully, there's more space to be exploited. And he'll have even more space to operate if players like Jamal Musiala, who is a brilliant player in his own right, continues to develop. Musiala, a player who loves to run with the ball, loves to run at defenders, suck defenders onto him. That will, in turn, open space for a player like Thomas Müller to, to get into and exploit. Um, this is a side with lots of defensive flexibility, and that's one of the reasons why I think they were so good two years ago in the Champions League is they've got the, the, the defense can mold itself to playing so many different ways. And a big part of that is, is Joshua Kimmich, how he can play as, as part of a midfield pivot or as a right back. Um, Benjamin Pavard can play as a right back or as a center back. Lucas Hernandez can play as a center back or a wing back. Alfonso Davies can play as a left back or a, a wing player. I mean, they've got so much tactical flexibility in defense that if one thing doesn't work, they can try three or four other things in game 
and not drop off quality-wise. I think Julian Nagelsmann is a brilliant tactician. I think he's, uh, truthfully, I think he's a better tactician than Hansi Flick was. I know Hansi Flick got the results, but in terms of, of footballing mind, I think Julian Nagelsmann has him beat. And then you got players like Leroy Sané and Serge Gnabry who are uh, seemingly made for the Champions League. Serge Gnabry in the Champions League is 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 otherworldly. I mean, the, the the pace and the dribbling ability and their ability to beat defenders one-on-one um, and then to... To, which they get a lot of, by the way, because you've got players like Thomas Muller and Robert Lewandowski requiring so much attention. Um, Libra Sané and Serge Gnabry are, are made for this competition. And that's why I think Bayern Munich are, are my second favorite. Because, yes, they might have underwhelmed a bit a season ago. They only reached the Champions League quarterfinal. But there were reasons why that happened. And the team that they've got now is is almost exactly the same as the one that they posted one of the best Champions League seasons of all time with two seasons ago. So those are my two favorites, Manchester City and Bayern Munich. Let's jump ahead. And this this is where I will make some enemies, I think, because I'm going to talk about two clubs that I think might struggle. I think the first one might be a, a fairly obvious one because I left them out of my which clubs are the favorites conversation. And this is a club that cannot be ignored when you're talking about big clubs in the Champions League. I think PSG truthfully might struggle. And I hate to say it because their expectation will absolutely be to win the Champions League. You can't have a transfer window like the one that they had and then not win the Champions League. So they're already entering with such massive expectation. But the thing with PSG and what concerns me is the defensive organization. That is Mauricio Pochettino's biggest challenge. That is his biggest task with this side. That's It's always been his biggest task. I mean, he joined a PSG side that never had any questions about the attack. He joined a PSG side that had Neymar, that had Kylian Mbappe, that had Mauro Icardi. But the defense was always what we questioned. And they did good business to bring in Akraf Hakimi, to bring in Nuno Mensch from, from sporting over the summer. But we saw it against Club Brugge, who, which, by the way, is a side that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, the defense looked woeful. There was... There was there, there was no organization. In, in a game that included Mbappe, Neymar, and Lionel Messi, Noah Lang and Charles de Ketelaire were the ones that, that stole the show. I mean, that, that's the reality of PSG's defense currently. Now, we know that Marco Verratti is an important player, and he wasn't active against Club Brugge, so maybe that changes things. But the reality is that this PSG side is one that you know you're getting next to no con- defensive contribution from the attacking three. For Neymar, Messi, Mbappe, sexy, sexy, sexy to watch when they've got the ball. When they don't have the ball, you might as well forget that they're playing because they will not give you much of anything in terms of pressing and winning the ball back and all that. Gini Wijnaldum, truthfully, is cut from the same cloth. And you can, if, if you want proof for that, take a look at his, his football reference scouting report. He, he is, in, in terms of, of defensive stats, he offers next to nothing out of possession. Well, I shouldn't say that because... Um, there are certain attributes to his game that that help. But in terms of, of pressing and, and putting in tackles and winning the ball back, Gini Wijnaldum is not offering a whole lot. So it comes down to players like Idrissa Ganagay, players like Marco Verratti, players like uh, Danilo, who now have that responsibility to win the ball back, and they weren't really doing it uh, against Club Brugge. And that's the concern, is, is if you can't shut down an attack with Noah Lang and Charles de Ketelaer, how are you going to shut down an attack? First of all, you're in the group of death. I mean, that's let's not ignore that 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 massive talking point as well. If you can't beat a side with Noah Lang and Charles de Ketelaire, I get you're away. I get it's match day one. I get they're fantastic young talents. But if you can't beat them, how are you going to beat a side with 
Ferran Torres, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish, Kevin De Bruyne. How are you going to be decide with Andre Silva, Christopher Nkunku, Danny Olmo? I mean, uh, and then how are you going to beat sides in the knockout phase? Uh, it, it's the, the, the defense that PSG threw out left a lot to be desired. And we are waiting for Sergio Ramos to get healthy. He will undoubtedly bolster the side. We are waiting for, you would assume, Nuno Mange will be the uh, the, the starting left back once he, he becomes fully integrated with this PSG side. But it, it's it's a massive question that I have about PSG and that I'm waiting for Mauricio Pochettino to answer because I am concerned about the defense. Um, and I think they have left a lot to be desired and that could end up being their Achilles heel as it has always been. My other team that I think might struggle is Manchester United, and it's for a similar reason. There's no quality defensive midfielder in the team. This is something that I talked about on our, our BTL Twitter spaces on last Friday, if you tuned into that, and why I didn't think Manchester United had the best transfer note in the Premier League. It's because they they still have that glaring need, and they haven't patched it. That defensive midfielder, that that Marcelo Brozovic, that, that Casemiro, that... Even a player like Declan Rice or Ibarra Kamavinga, I know Kamavinga isn't an out-and-out defensive midfielder, but he can play in that role, and he'd probably be the best one in the United squad. Play like Ive Bissouma. They play in a group with Villarreal and Atalanta, and as we already saw, young boys, in which a, a ball-winning, physical, defensive midfielder in the center of the park is vital. It's so, so important because Atalanta are a fantastic attacking outfit. We know this and they've got quality players through the middle. For Villarreal, Gerard Moreno is the kind of striker that that hunts for space and, and ducks into half spaces and just wreaks havoc in between the lines. And if you have a quality defensive midfielder, you can neutralize that by, by just having, having have him follow Moreno around. You know, you know tight him, mark, mark him tightly because you have to. United don't have that player, and because of that, I think we might see Gerard Moreno just just feast on this United defense. And that's not to say that I think Villarreal will, will beat Manchester United twice. Hell, I still think Manchester United advance out of the group. But I have my, my long-term concerns for United just because they don't have that one real physical defensive midfielder that has proven to be so, so important in good Champions League winning teams in seasons past with, with most recently, N'Golo Kante, Jorginho. Prior to that, players like Joshua Kimmich. Prior to that, players like Casemiro. Players like Sergio Busquets. Players like um, even Jordan Henderson. I mean, I mean, a, a defensive midfielder who you can plug in right in front of the center backs and just have him defend. United don't have that, and we've seen that Champions League winning sides need that. That's why Manchester United are a club that I think might struggle as well. It's been the same problem for two years, by the way. It, it, they've had the same problems for years, and they haven't addressed it. And I'm sure for United fans, and I've spoken to a few, it's gotten a bit frustrating. Um, PSG and Manchester United, my two clubs that I think might struggle. Now let's quickly, because I am running a bit over on time here, let's quickly talk about which under-the-radar clubs might surprise us. And I've gone for two clubs outside of Europe's traditional top six leagues. Um, one of them is Chalk, and the other one is uh, maybe a bit of a, of a surprise, although I don't think it really should be if you know the team well. Uh, the first club that I think might surprise, and this is, is the Chalk one, is Ajax. It's it's Eric Ten Hag's Ajax. I can't help but feel like this Ajax, the 2021-2022 Ajax, is strikingly similar to that of the 2018-2019 Ajax. And it's not particularly surprising because uh, a lot of the same pieces are still there. Eric Ten Hag is still at the helm, despite links with uh, with some of, of Europe's biggest clubs. And, and there's still plenty of pieces that remain from that uh, that semifinal side, Dusan Tadic is still with Ajax, Mesraoui, Deli Blind are still there. 
and in terms of, of comparisons, uh, that that parallels you can draw, they've got their their rising star midfielder, that player who kind of a, a box-to-box player, a real number eight, Frankie de Jong, three years ago, Ryan Gravenberch. Now you've got your young, pacey, sneaky winger. Uh, it was Hakim Ziyech and or David Neres three seasons ago. This year it's Anthony, who who is, was brilliant against Sporting in, uh, in in their first match day. And you've got your up-and-coming center back who's, who's quickly ascending and quickly developing into one of the finest young defenders on the planet. Three years ago, it was Matthias Delict, and this year it's Urien Timber. So there are differences, obviously, as well, but when, when you look at what made that Ajax team go, it, it seems like a lot of the same reasons, a lot of the same factors, they've got a version of it in this year's squad as well. We saw it with with, with Sebastian Haller and with the way the whole team performed against Sporting on match day one. They are absolutely, uh, if not a, if, if not the club to beat in that group, they're absolutely one of the top two favorites in that group um, with Ajax, Sporting, Borussia Dortmund, and Besiktas. Uh, so maybe maybe Dortmund are the favorite, Ajax are the second favorite, but those will be some really interesting matches, Borussia Dortmund versus Ajax. But the, the bottom line is that this is a very winnable group, and Ajax are a club that have demonstrated in years past that they can advance out of the round of 16, and they do have the quality, uh, depending on the year, of course, but I think this year they definitely have the quality, to, to make some waves in the knockout round and to maybe uh, upset some clubs early on. And again, last year was Porto. This year, I think it could very well be Ajax. I'm going to be watching every single one of their Champions League matches because I think they are going to be the premier club to watch in terms of clubs outside of Europe's traditional top six leagues. The other one that I'm really intrigued to see that always, and this is another thing that we talked about on London's Finest, this is a club that always seems to get the short end of the stick in terms of Champions League draws. And that is Erby Salzburg, who finally looks set to mount a challenge at a top two place in their group. Because if you remember, I mean, I mean first of all, Salzburg are, are no strangers to the Champions League, at least recently. But they always seem to be get to, they always seem to get drawn into just obscenely difficult groups in which there's no realistic way that they can advance. Last year, they were stuck with Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. The year prior, they were stuck with Liverpool and Atletico Madrid. Um, and even though they had plenty of talent and and players that you wanted to see advance far in the competition, Pat Sendaka, Erling Holland, uh, to name just a couple, Takumi Minamino, Huang Hichan. <sighs> It, it was never feasible because they, they, there were always two massive clubs that, that spoiled the party. This year for Salzburg is completely different because not only are they the favorite, or not, excuse me, whoa, not only are they a club that can advance out of their group that includes Wolfsburg, Lille, and Sevilla, you could make the argument that they are the favorite to advance out of the group, which is bizarre to say because they're the only club that don't play in Europe's traditional top six leagues. But when you look at the Salzburg side, the individual ability that they've got is fantastic. They've got the incredible striker duo of Kerry Adiemi and Benjamin Cheska. Adiemi we talked about on the last episode. Cheska, I assume, we'll talk about soon. They cause all sorts of problems right away against Sevilla. Brendan Aronson can create as number 10, can play as a winger, can even play as a false nine at times. Mohamed Kamara is a player who I really want to focus on, who I'm going to get into a little bit later in the next segment as well. But he runs the show in midfield. Kamara is just as big a prospect as any of the others. You've got Umar Soleil in defense, who looks like a gem in this in, in the center of that, that Salzburg back line. This is, you know, we talk about the group of death and PSG, Lille, uh, excuse me, PSG, uh, Leipzig, 
and Manchester City. This is the group of life: Salzburg, Wolfsburg, Lille, and uh, and and Sevilla. Because all four of them, you can make realistic arguments for as clubs that can not only advance but win the group. Every single club in this group has a chance at advancing out of the group stage, and Salzburg might finally be en route to a round of 16 appearance, because my God, they deserve one. They deserve a round of 16 appearance. They are far too good a side to go three years in a row without advancing out of the group stage. I think Salzburg are a club that might surprise some people. All right, so so to round out episode three, if you are a new listener, well, excuse me, no, 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 no. If you are a returning listener, is what I should have said, if you're a returning listener, you know how I like to end these shows uh, with a, a bet the bank. And if you're a new listener, bet the bank is a segment that I do where I, I, I dedicate a few minutes at the end of every episode to, to talk about one of uh, the rising stars in the sport of football. One of the players who we're going to be talking about in, in four or five years, because that those are the players that I really, really love to learn about. The ones that might not be under the spotlight now, but who will be there. Um, our last episode, we talked about Kerry Matiemi. The episode prior to that, we talked about Dominic Sobislai. But today we're going to do things a little bit differently because I do want to do a bet the bank and I do have a couple good players that I'm going to use. And I definitely have one for episode four that I'll keep on the ice for now. Um, but I want to combine bet the bank with this Champions League style episode. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to give you five U21 players that I think you should be watching throughout the Champions League. And some of them are obvious. Some of them you've already heard of. Others you may not have. Uh, Five players on my list. I'll go through each of them uh, relatively briefly, give a bit of a a description on them and how they played on match day one, and then uh, then we'll get up and get out of here. Number one for me is a player who I haven't mentioned yet on this show, but who was was absolutely brilliant for Club Brugge. When you win man of the match in a game that includes Lionel Messi, Neymar, and Kylian Mbappe, You've done something right, and that's exactly what Noah Lang did for Club Brugge on match day one, and he is a player who I'm going to be watching as much as I possibly can of. Uh, His entire skill set was on full display against PSG. He was at the center of everything that Brugge were doing in attack. He made his runs in behind. He dropped into the half space to receive. He moved into the space whenever he released the ball. Very intelligent mover, by the way. Very intelligent movements on the ball and off the ball. He's got these impressive bursts of space to get around and get past defenders, particularly when he's in a wide position. Uh, And he gave the PSG defense a whole lot to think about. But maybe my favorite thing about Noah Lang is, and this might sound sillier in jest, but seriously, it is confidence. He, He is... He has no lack of confidence, genuinely. He, this is a player who, at 1-1, tried an audacious bicycle kick to take the lead against, against PSG. And it, it was nowhere close. I mean, he it was not near the target. But the fact that he even attempted it was, uh, was, was impressive, and it caught my eye. And Noah Lang is just an intriguing story. He's a player who didn't get opportunities at Ajax, who rarely miss with youth, ta- with youth talent. Ajax are a club that traditionally are very, very good at evaluating young players. But they missed with Noah Lang. They, they Very simply, they missed. They didn't give him his opportunities. And now he's one of the brightest young attackers in the world over at Club Brugge, alongside Charles de Cattelier, who who deserves to be in that conversation. Not going to talk about him a whole lot today, uh, but de Cattelier and Lang form a really, really formidable attacking duo for Club Brugge. Might make some waves in the Champions League group of death. Uh, player number two is a player that I certainly hope all of you have heard of, and I just I, I need to reference him because he's been so, so Good for Borussia Dortmund. And this is not a surprise, but Jude Bellingham is, is on this list. My number two on my list of U21 players that you have to watch for this season's Champions League. Uh, Bellingham genuinely at 18 years old 
might already be one of the most complete number eights in the world. I don't know if I'm, I'm jumping the gun there, but I genuinely can say he might be one of the most complete number eights on the entire planet. The way that he sees the game, he seems to always be a step ahead of everybody else. His movements off the ball are, are so intelligent. That's how he got his goal against Besiktas, by the way. His control is wonderful. He, he's fantastic, close control, knows how to touch, uh, knows how to, how to, how to take touches away from defenders into space. By the way, that's how he got his assist, his assist against Besiktas. And his distribution of the ball is so so good. He's got such a wide passing range, can deliver a ball anywhere on the pitch. He's calm on the ball too, which is crucial. He contributes defensively. Um, I, I can't remember the last time Borussia Dortmund have had a number eight of Jude Bellingham's quality. He's he's 19 years old. He's a teenager, but he's so, so good. And he's especially good beyond his years. I, I love watching this man play, and he will only continue to improve for Borussia Dortmund. His market value goes up every single time he steps onto a football pitch. Player number three for me is another Bundesliga-based player, another player who you've probably heard of, but who I want to to throw a bone because I thought he was really impressive on match day one for Bayern Munich as well. And that is Jamal Musiala, who played an integral role in Bayern Munich's domination of Barcelona. He, like Bellingham, he seems to be a player that always leaves positive impacts on matches, whether he's a starter or whether he comes off the bench, because Musiala is not a player who has a regular spot in the starting 11 carved out. A lot of his appearances, a lot of his most impactful appearances, have come off the bench. And that's what makes Musiala such an impressive player, is that he doesn't need 75, 80 minutes to leave his mark on a match. He can come on in the 71st minute and, and provide a goal and an assist. He's done that several times which is, is stunning for a teenager. Like Bellingham, his market value goes up every time he steps onto a pitch. Uh, and against Barcelona specifically, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show when we were talking about Bayern as one of the favorites to win the competition, this is a player who loves to run at defenders, loves to take defenders on 1v1, likes to suck defenders onto him. He completed four dribbles in the first half against Barcelona, which was as many as the entire Barcelona team combined. He has no fear in taking on defenders. He provides end product as well. Uh, he also assisted Barcelona's, uh, he assisted Bayern Munich's second goal, which effectively put that match to bed, although Barcelona were never getting back into that match. But in terms of, of you know, an effective ending, the second goal is usually the one that puts the nail in the coffin. Jamal Musiala, a player that I am keeping an eye on and that I think you should as well as this Champions League progresses. Player number four. This may be a player that you haven't heard of. He's a player that I'm, I'm relatively new to, but I'm really, really intrigued to watch him and is a player who I already mentioned a bit earlier in the show, and that is RB Salzburg's Mohamed Kamara, the engine in the Salzburg midfield. This is a Salzburg side where the attention, and maybe rightfully so, but the attention goes to players like Kerry Matiemi, Benjamin Cheska, even to an extent, uh, Brendan Aronson. But <sighs> Kamara deserves just as much attention as those guys do because when you when you understand the impact that he leaves on a match, particularly in their match day one tie against Sevilla, it, here are the numbers. He won 12 of his 15 duels, competed three of his four tackles. He wasn't dispossessed once despite completing the second most passes out of anybody in the team. He completed both of his dribbles attempted. He drew six fouls, made seven recoveries. He, I mean, I mean, I think the word bossed in, in football is a bit overused, but in this instance, it's not. He bossed in his defensive midfield role, and he let the more attack-minded players get forward. Man of the match for me 
in a game that saw Karim Adeyemi win three penalties inside 35 minutes. That's how good Mohamed Kamara was. And he's, for what it's worth, getting comparisons to N'Golo Kante. Not a bad player to be receiving uh, comparisons to. Player number five, I'm going to go to Ajax. And it's a player who I've mentioned uh, fleetingly. But I want to give a bit more credit because um, he's really come into his own this season. And partic- and, and as well, he, he uh, earned some minutes for the Netherlands during the, the Euros over the summer. And that's Yuri Timber, who was perfect in defense for a nearly perfect Ajax side, conceded once to Sporting, but that is nothing but a blip on the radar in a 5-1 victory. Timber distributed the ball well, stood strong in defense, progressed the ball well with his feet, which is is uh, uh, one of his key characteristics. Yuri Timber is, is, for me, he's one of Europe's brightest young defenders. And he's still very, very young. And he's only getting better. And actually, he's he's getting better very, very quickly, almost at an exponential rate. He got his first, I believe it was his first minutes of, of national team action, of senior national team action during the Euros. Um, he's carved out a place in this Ajax defense, and he was absolutely fantastic last night against Sporting. And I have to show the defenders some love, too. I, I need to show the defense uh, a little bit of love. Jurin Timber is, is certainly one of the best young defenders on the entire planet. So that's my five. Noah Lang, Jude Bellingham, Jamal Musiala, Mohamed Kamara, and Jurian Timber are my five players who I think you should be keeping an eye on. My five U21s to watch in the Champions League. That was fun. Dear Lord, 56 minutes. My mouth is dry. I got to take a swig from my from my giant gallon of, of water here. But before I do, um, please, if you enjoy the podcast, and I certainly hope that you did, if you tell you what, I'll put it this way. If you listened for 57 minutes and didn't enjoy the podcast, um, let's talk. W- w- what's going on? What, what's Why are you doing this to yourself? If you made it this far and didn't enjoy what you heard, um, let's figure out what the underlying issue is. But if you did enjoy what you heard, uh, thank you so much, first of all, for, for getting through all of it. I really appreciate the support of this this still fledgling podcast, this still young podcast that we're looking to develop with everything you love, every single episode. If you liked what you heard, please go ahead and, uh, get, well, first of all, subscribe to, to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever in the world you get your podcast from, go ahead and subscribe because not only do we have uh, the Tactics Room on the Breaking the Lines audio podcast channel, we've also got Cortelinas, which is a uh, Liga Portugal-based podcast. Uh, it's fantastic. I strongly recommend giving it a listen. If you want to learn a bit more about Portuguese football, that one is a bit older than mine is, I have to say. That one's been going on. It's a bit more entrenched. It's a bit. It's, it's got uh, deeper roots than this one does, but that's only where we are for now. You know, we, that that's that's the nature of the game, baby. That, that that's 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 how this thing works. As we continue to grow, and we continue to grow together. So go check out all of those podcasts. Plenty of episodes for you to go and get caught up on. Also, follow Breaking the Lines on Twitter while you're at it. Hey, there's an idea. At uh, BTLVid over on Twitter. So much brilliant, brilliant content. Uh, much of it I, I referenced for this episode. Lots of player profiles. Player profiles on players like Noble Lang, Charles de Ketelaire, um, Jermaine Musiala, Jurian Timber. Oh, that rhymed. I didn't even realize. Oh, that rhymed. Um, but uh, the, more, the more important storyline of, of this this plug is go and follow at BTLVid on Twitter. Uh, we quite literally have content being pumped out every single day. Lots of written content, uh, but some fantastic audio content as well. Follow me on Twitter as well, at WillFowler5. Every now and then I fire off an interesting tweet, a half-decent tweet that you might find yourself interested in. Uh, That will do it for episode three. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I will see you right back here for episode four sooner than you know it. Thank you again so much for listening. You've been tuning in to The Tactics Room, presented by Breaking the Lines.